So we, uh, we hope to always be a church that communicates grace, 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 and hopefully not, again, just in word, but in deed, and to show people the grace of God. Uh, this series um, is a challenge in that the book of Jonah is four chapters uh, with a lot of uh, emphasis and, and content and, uh, and significance and meaning, and we're going to go through it in three weeks. So... Naturally, our Bible professor, uh, Will, was like, oh, that's going to be tough. And I thought, yeah, thanks. Um, but we, uh, we're going to highlight the depths of God's grace in, in the book of Jonah and the story of Jonah. Uh, we closed out the sermon series last week of our message and mission with how do we keep going in outreach, uh, saying that God still works in unbelievers, God works in our weakness, and God will bring us to eternal glory, just some things that um, help us to persevere in sharing the gospel. Uh, and again, Will is going to finish uh, session nine in Bible study today of that series. Uh, but as we explore the depths of grace in Jonah, it's a story of a prophet of God named Jonah on a mission to preach to the people of Nineveh. At least that's what he's commissioned with in the beginning. And then, of course, things go a little differently for a couple of chapters. Uh, most people, whether they believe it to be true or not, are aware that Jonah is the man who supposedly or actually was swallowed by a giant fish, a great fish. Uh, a lot of times people say it was a whale, but the Bible says a great fish. Um, the book of Jonah is one of the minor prophets in the Bible, minor because they're shorter, not because they're JV. Uh, the major prophets are longer books about the prophets of God, and the minor prophets are shorter books about the prophet of God. So um, not more or less significant, just longer books, longer stories, longer records of their ministries uh, make them major. I mentioned that some people, even many believers um, and quote-unquote Bible scholars, uh, treat the story of Jonah as fictional, just a made-up story told to make a point or teach a lesson, but I believe the events recorded in Jonah actually historically unfolded, took place, and happened, um, mainly because of what Jesus says in the New Testament. He refers to the sign of Jonah. Uh, people are asking him for a, another sign, another wonder, right? He's known for, for miracles and things that are supernatural, and uh, there are people who come to him seeking a sign, and he says, the only sign you're going to get is the sign of Jonah, and compares his upcoming time in the tomb to Jonah's time in the belly of the whale, um, which also would correlate his upcoming resurrection with Jonah's being spit out by the whale. And so he says, you'll have that sign of Jonah, um, that's the sign you're going to get, saying I'm going to die and be buried and will rise again, which is a great, great sign, right? And so he points those people to his uh, divinity in the upcoming resurrection. Uh, this is that um, interaction from Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 through 41. It says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answering him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Uh, do one of those tricks again. Show us something amazing. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here." So again, he compares his upcoming time in the tomb to Jonah's time in the belly of the great fish. 
And not only that, because he could possibly just be referring to like the moral tale of Jonah, right? This make-believe fairy tale that was told to teach a lesson and say, my upcoming time in the tomb is like the story you've heard, that made-up story of Jonah. But he goes on to say, to negate that, that the men of Nineveh will rise up and condemn these unbelieving doubters because the men of Nineveh, the people of Nineveh, repented at the preaching of Jonah. Uh, that's a little spoiler alert uh, to tell you how the story of Jonah ends up. And so uh, he does eventually go and preach to them. We hear from Jesus and we see in Jonah that the people respond to the message that Jonah proclaims, or at least that the presence of the Lord and the message of the Lord uh, convicts them of. Regardless, Jesus would not refer to a pretend group of people and say that this imaginary pretend fairy tale type of people are going to stand in judgment over you. There are actual people in heaven from Nineveh because there were actual people who responded to the actual person, Jonah, who proclaimed the message of God um, and who actually spent time in the belly of a great fish. And so that's why I believe the things that we read in Jonah are actual historical events. <clears throat> I believe Jesus said that they were, believed that they were. With that being said, we're going to look at three different facets or aspects of God's grace from the story of Jonah over the next three Sundays, starting today with the fact that we need grace. We need grace. This is Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 16. We're going to leave it on a cliffhanger. Don't read 17. Don't spoil it. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for the evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the sea, of the ship, and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us, on whose account this evil has come upon us? What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that the great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah 
and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. So Jonah is called out by God to get up and go and call out the Ninevites because of their evil. He's told to go to this great city, and this isn't like, greatest city on earth, Houston, Texas, woo, this is great, like big. Go to that big city of Nineveh. There's a lot of people there, and I want you to call out their evil. And during this series on grace, as we look at God's grace, it's not only his grace towards Jonah, but also his grace towards the Ninevites in sending a warning to them. And so we may find ourselves over the next three weeks identifying with Jonah or the Ninevites or both from time to time based on how God shows his grace to them and how he shows grace to us. But the first thing I want to remind us of this morning is that we need grace because we intend to sin. We need grace because we intend to sin. The Bible says that apart from Jesus, our hearts are set on self. We are devoted to self, we glory in ourselves, we look out for ourselves, etc. In fact, we're incapable of pleasing God or obeying Him by faith until we're made spiritually alive by faith. Our motives, our intent is set on worshiping ourselves, even if we don't see it that way. And I don't mean that we pray to ourselves or sing songs of worship to ourselves of how great we are, but we're out to please, preserve, and or prosper ourselves above all else. And if we're setting ourselves up as ultimate, then we're not setting God up as ultimate, and we're robbing him of glory that he is due. So we're setting ourselves up against God. So like the Ninevites, we are evil in ignorance of the gospel until we hear the good news proclaimed to us, because we're set on exalting ourselves. The Ninevites were intentionally set on not pursuing the things of God. Scripture uses some nasty terms to refer to our standing before God without Jesus. Terms like children of wrath, enemies of God, sinners, evildoers. These are terms which point to the fact that we are slaves to sin, incapable of obeying God apart from Christ. The Bible says we are without excuse. We know right from wrong and we commit wrong. We choose to sin. We are choosing to disobey. We intend to sin. Surely the people of God are different, right? We're better than this. No, we're not. Sadly, even after we come to Christ, we still struggle with intent to sin. The difference is that in Christ, by faith, we are now able to obey God. We are freed to be able to obey God when we couldn't before. We don't have to obey our flesh, but we still do from time to time. Look here in chapter 1, Jonah chapter 1, at his intent to sin. And Jonah is a God-fearing man. He's a prophet of God. He's a messenger of God, used by God to preach truth. But in his disobedience, he intends to and chooses to rebel against God. God said, arise, go to Nineveh. And the only part Jonah did right was arise. Verse 3 says, Jonah arose to flee from the presence of the Lord. God says, arise and go to Nineveh. But Jonah arose and went to flee. There's several of these in the book of Jonah, these kind of unexpected outcomes or reversals where you say, God says to arise, Jonah arose, and kind of the assumption, oh, he's going to do what God said, he doesn't. And so it's this, oh, this unexpected, I didn't think he was going to 
do that. I thought he would arise and follow God like God told him to. This is intent to sin in the heart of Jonah. This is a god fear. This is a messenger, a prophet, choosing rebellion, choosing sin, intending to disobey. If there were any doubt as to the very deliberate intent of Jonah's sin, consider the geography of this story. Jonah is in either his hometown of gath Hefer or Jerusalem, which is not far from there. So if this is home base, and kind of follow me if you can map it right here. This is Jerusalem or his hometown. I'll have to do it this way so you guys are not confused. And so God says, arise and go to Nineveh, which is to the northwest, 500 to 600 miles from Jerusalem or his hometown, just by land, this way. And it says, instead of arising and going to Nineveh, this is now home base, he arises and goes down to Joppa. So Joppa is southwest of where he is, southwest, and he's supposed to go northeast, right? And so he goes the opposite direction to get in a boat. And he doesn't just go to Joppa, but he buys a ticket to Tarshish. And Tarshish, guess where that is? Way over there. It's like, if this is 500, 600 miles, Tarshish is 2,500 miles that direction, by sea, not even by land. There's some disagreement on the actual location of Tarshish, but either way, it's to the west. And so he starts here, and instead of going that way for just a few days, he tends to go that way for a really long time. And so he's like, I'm committed to the, the length of time it's going to take me to get there. I'm committed to the distance away from what God has called me to do. I am very intentionally intending to deliberately disobey what God has called me to do. And it wasn't just a physical or geographic fleeing that Jonah is attempting. There's a spiritual aspect to it. Because we read that he is fleeing the presence of the Lord. And you're saying, well, presence, that's physical, right? That's locational. Well, is our God, who is spirit, bound to a geographic location? No. Would Jonah think that he is? No. Jonah understands that he can't escape God. God can go wherever. He has all access. He's sovereign over the land and sea. He tells the sailors this in a few verses down. So what is Jonah fleeing exactly? He's trying to position himself in a place amongst the people that know nothing of this God, who are not devoted to this God, And you would think, well, the Ninevites would fit that bill right, but the Ninevites are going to be a reminder of the fact that he's supposed to be proclaiming the truth of the one true living God to them. So he can't just go and camp amongst the people. Of course, the Ninevites are also enemies of Israel, right? And so it's not like he's going to go and just hang out with enemies to flee the presence of the Lord because they're pagan. He wants to get out of sight, mind, and surrounding with people who know the one true God, people who worship the one true God, and the people that he's called to proclaim the one true God to. He's going to this unreached pagan people, but not to preach to them, but so that he's not reminded of worship, obedience, repentance, the mission he's been called to. There's intent in Jonah to avoid the things, the thoughts, the people of God. The text here in Jonah contrasts God's calling with Jonah's disobedience uh, often in the text here by juxtaposing God's commands of rise and up with Jonah going down, descending. You can look for these in the text as we work our way through it the next three Sundays. 
Like Jonah, we often, when we intend to sin and are resisting God, flee from the people of God too. Uh, a good friend of mine was once leading a, a discussion, and he said often the first step away from God is a step away from his people. You want to distance yourself from people who are talking about the things of the Lord, thinking about the things of the Lord, going to remind you of the things of the Lord. This is what Jonah is setting out to do. He's fleeing from the people of God. We don't want reminders of who God is, what he's done, or what he wants to do. So we need grace because we, like Jonah, intend to sin. We also need grace because we invest in sin. We need grace because we invest in sin. The second point just serves to reveal some of the links we sometimes go to in order to flee from the Lord. And it's just a minor detail in the part of this story. But I think it's evidence of something we're often guilty of as well and don't realize it sometimes. If you look at Jonah chapter 1, verse 3, Jonah found the ship and paid the fare. He bought a ticket. Though remember, Tarshish was a long way from Joppa. So this is not like just getting on a, a metro bus and paying, you know, 50 cents or a dollar or whatever. This would have been a hefty price to go this far. The text also in the Jewish tradition point out to us the idea that Jonah wasn't just buying a passenger ticket on a passenger ship, but more like he's renting out and hiring out the boat and the crew for this journey. The verb in Hebrew means he paid her hire, her kind of being the ship, this feminine term. He paid her hire, like hiring out, again, the whole ship and the crew, as opposed to he paid his payment, right? Paying what he owed for a seat. Our intent to sin leads us down a path of costly disobedience. Sin costs us more than we often realize, even though we're intentionally investing in it. I'm not just referring to money, right? What are we investing our time, our energy, our thoughts, our resources in? We need to check our calendars, check our expenses, check our worries, our anxieties, check uh, our frustrations. Are we investing in idols, false gods? Are we investing in sin and disobedience like Jonah did? These departures from the things of God and deposits toward our disobedience then go from investing to resting. This is the third and final point this morning. We need grace because we take comfort in sin. We need grace because we take comfort in sin. I don't want to over-allegorize Jonah's actions here and say every little thing is a spiritual symbol of something else, but... Jonah, as I mentioned, he goes down to Joppa and down into the boat. And then again in verse 5, we read Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship. But what was the command from God? Up, arise. And so the author is painting this picture of he's told to up and arise, but every time we see him move, it's down, down, down. Just a really striking picture of his disobedience. I think we're seeing these very intentional choices with these descriptions, which paint a picture of Jonah diving deeper into disobedience, further from the people of God and the worship of God, the things of God. And I don't think it's a stretch to say that he's pretty comfortable with his choices and his intentions to sin because he's comfortable enough to lay down 
and take a nap. There's an old saying which goes like this, sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. But if we consider the intent of our hearts to sin and the investments we make in sin and how comfortable we often become in sin, it might be more accurate to say that sin takes us exactly where we want for not nearly as long as our hearts desire and costs us exactly what we're willing and able to pay. Because if it didn't, we wouldn't end up in the places we end up. Consider hoarders. This was a a show for a little while because people like to watch train wrecks and dumpster fires, but there were people who suffer from some psychological disorder and would hoard and not just kind of like, oh, I'm kind of a um, pack rat, but would really just, their houses were impossible to navigate and it would be disgusting or filthy or just overwhelming amounts and piles of things. But the people who lived there never thought, this is too much, I have to get away from this, right? They were like, yeah, this, this is right. This is what I set out to do. I have this compulsion every time I see whatever, whatever it's magazines or whatever it might be collecting something. They felt a need, a compulsion to get one more. They never had enough. And so they were choosing to do that. They didn't think, oh, I don't need this. They thought, I need this. And they would figure out a way to live amongst these piles of garbage and stuff. And again, it's not shocking to them. It's shocking to someone who would enter that space and go, oh my goodness, how did you come this far? But they know exactly how they went that far. They paid what they wanted to, they took what they wanted to, they kept what they wanted to, and they piled it up with the rest of it. Now there's something broken in their thinking. But that's part of what they wanted to do. And they were comfortable in what they had accumulated. The point of the original saying that I read, that sin will take you farther and keep you longer and cost you more, is that when we come to our senses or when we look at our disobedience through the right lenses, then we realize we never imagined we'd end up where we are. We've wasted so much time and energy, money, whatever it might be, on something so fleeting and dissatisfying and or downright evil. Sometimes we may be shocked if we're awakened by the grace of God to recognize how far we've fallen. Think about the prodigal son story that Jesus tells in the New Testament. It's the story of a son who asks for his inheritance early. He goes, he wastes it on reckless, sinful living and finds himself at the end of his rope, desperate for a handout. The story says that when, he, when the resources dried up, when the party ended, he began to be in need without his sin to take comfort in, and he came to himself. See, up until the need, sin took the prodigal son exactly where he wanted and intended to go, and he paid whatever it asked of him while he could, without complaint. He was perfectly comfortable. But it's like so many deals we hear advertised all the time, while supplies last. The deal is good while there are resources to back it up. The prodigal son was comfortable while supplies lasted. But that's the catch with sin. Supplies don't last. We can't continue to invest because sin asks for more and more. We can't stay comfortable because while we're willing to pay more, we come to a place where we just can't. We're unable to pay more. We're unable to deliver what sin asks and requires of us. This is the very nature of sin. 
It cannot and will not fulfill us forever. It's fun, it's enticing, it gives the illusion of satisfaction, but like a trip to Disney World, you got to go home at some point. Every sin is like this. When the high wears off, or the rush, or the feeling of validation, or the cheap imitation of intimacy, or whatever it is, goes away. There's a sin hangover that is stronger than the one before. And when the party ends, our comfort disappears, and we can't invest anymore, even though we want to. And that's usually when we come to our senses, or God brings us back to our senses, and we're often shocked at how far we've gone down this path. We ask ourselves how we let things get this bad. We promise ourselves and we promise God we won't do it again. And we have the opportunity to respond in faith or according to the sinful flesh we struggle to put to death. For in Christ, there is always that option. Obey Jesus or continue to follow our flesh. We see here in chapter one that Jonah is woken up amidst the crazy storm, this mighty tempest. God wants Jonah to acknowledge his sin and disobedience. Jonah recognizes this storm has been sent to disrupt his comfort and bring him face to face with his rebellion. He knows that his disobedience has invited God's intervention and that his comfort has expired. Jonah needs God's grace. We need God's grace. We need grace to bring us to our senses and to rescue us from our rebellious intentions, our idolatrous investments, and our false comforts. And God has extended us grace by sending his son, Jesus. See, Jesus lived this life we never could have and gave up his life to pay a debt we never could have paid. And the Bible says if we believe in Jesus, surrendering our lives to him, we will be saved. We're going to look at this salvation next week with the depths of grace part two, which is titled, We're Saved by Grace. But I certainly didn't want to put a dot, dot, dot on the end of today's message and say, wait and see how that finds out. I didn't want to wait till next week to point us to the good news of Jesus, the good news that Jesus came to save sinners. And it's great news because I'm a sinner. You're sinners. We need the grace of God. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the, the story, the history, um, your interaction with the person Jonah. I thank you for uh, allowing me even this week to, to see and learn new aspects of it, new uh, deeper significance of the things that you have given us in your word to describe Jonah's calling, his commissioning, to describe his rebellion and his disobedience. And God, I thank you most of all for your grace, which acts first and reaches out and extends salvation to Jonah physically, to the Ninevites spiritually and physically, to us spiritually God, I pray that we would, again, see your grace so clearly. As confounding and confusing as it sometimes is, that you would extend grace to us before we considered you, 
while we were set in our hearts against you as enemies of yours, you acted first. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That you initiated a plan to redeem us and rescue us and not just set us back at zero, but to bless us with every spiritual blessing that is in Christ Jesus. An overwhelming amount of grace and mercy extended to us, undeserved, disobedient, rebellious sinners. God, I pray that we would savor and embrace and be thankful for your grace moment by moment, day in and day out, and that we would be able to point others to that grace as well. You have invited us into relationship, God. Pray that we would not take it for granted. Then we would just keep inviting more and more people to the family, to the party. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.